Would you pray with me as we go before the Lord? Lord, we come before you asking that you would anoint us and clothe us with the Spirit from on high to lead us into the truth, to capture our minds and our hearts, to counsel us, guide us, open us, bring us from death to life. We look to you, Father, and we ask for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. If you're able, I'd invite you to stand one more time for the reading of God's Word this morning. The reading upon which our teaching is based comes from the book of Revelation, chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. We're continuing our studies that we're doing this summer on the letters of Jesus to the churches in Revelation. And it writes, to the angel of the church in Sardis, write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. We're looking at the seven letters of the book of Revelation, letters that basically tell us how to be the church in the world. In other words, giving us practical training, practical instruction on what it looks like to be a faithful presence in the world, what it means to be the church in the world today. They give us a fairly good picture, a snapshot, if you will, of what traits, of what virtues, of what characteristics are required for us to love our neighbor. For us to be a faithful presence in the world. We've seen thus far in our series in the letters of Revelation that Jesus is standing in the middle. Not above, not alongside, not below, but in the middle of seven lampstands which represent all the churches. And from there, right in the middle, he delivers these seven messages, these seven oracles, these authoritative, thus saith the Lord to the churches, and each message carries with it the same major purpose, and that is, in the words of Eugene Peterson, to give spiritual direction, to give spiritual training to help disciples live in but not of the world, to, in a sense, carry on that very difficult balance, that very difficult tension of what it means to be engaged in the world but not of the world. To be savory in the world, to be a a part and involved as a witness, while not being worldly ourselves. In other words, this is practical training. This is instruction from the risen, ascended, glorified, reigning Jesus on what kind of Christian, and for that matter, what kind of church we are required to be. We need to be in order to live faithfully in, but not of the world. This morning we're looking at the message, the oracle, the letter of Jesus to the church in Sardis. And Jack Miller, quoting the former president of Westminster Seminary, Edmund Clowney, writes, the nature of the church is defined as being the unique possession of God. 
his people indwelt by him. His purpose for his people was that they may make his glory known through the gospel to all nations. In other words, the fundamental character of the church is to belong to God. In other words, if you're a Christian, you are not your own. You don't own your own life. You don't call the shots in your own life. You don't determine your own life. That's the part of what Jesus was saying. If anyone, Here's the evangelistic part of what Jesus says. If anyone would come after me, here's his invitation. You want to follow me? Here's what it costs. Divorce yourself from yourself, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me for whoever would save his life. In other words, if you hold on to insist on being kind of the captain of your own ship, you lose your life. But he who loses his life for me and for my sake truly gains real and true life. So in other words, we're called as disciples and obviously as a church to belong to him, to be about his business, his agenda, his work, to put it in the symbolic language, the picturesque language of the book of Revelation, it's to be a lampstand. The calling of the church is to be a lampstand. That's the church's purpose. And Sardis, here's what's unique about that particular church in that particular city. They were in the process of forgetting their purpose. A very dangerous situation. We need to remember our purpose. And in order to do this, the text gives us Two keys. Two things to not lose our purpose. And if you've noticed, I said this in the first service, every sermon, amazing how consistent Jesus is. Every sermon seems to have bad news and good news. I feel like every week I'm saying, stay with me through the bad news. Hang in there. The good news is coming. But this text is no different. It presents to us bad news and good news. The first thing that's remembered for not to lose our purpose is we have to admit our problem. The church at Sardis was challenged to admit their problem. And then the good news is to live in light of the promise of God. Admit your problem, live in light of the promise. That's the two basic points, two things we're going to glean from this text. First of all, admit our problem. This is the shortest of all the letters of Revelation. To tell you a little bit about the city of Sardis, in AD 96, the population of Sardis was between 60 and 100,000, and this message, like all the other messages, speaks beyond the particular circumstances, the particular situation of this church and city, and challenges the church in every time period, in every geographical location. If you notice, here's one of the things that makes this particular letter unique to all the letters we've looked at. So far, if you notice, there's no commendation. You know, in all the other letters, what have we seen? Jesus is calling them aside. He's looking at them, and what is he saying? He's saying, here's what you're doing well. Here's what I can affirm. Here's what I can praise. But here's what I have against you. Not so in this letter. In this letter, he comes right, and it's confrontation from the start. Right from the start, he's confronting things. Look with me at verse 1. In verse 1, he says, you have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete. So he said, I know your works, but I haven't found them complete in the sight of my God. Now listen to what he's saying. He says, you have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. What does that mean? You have a name. You have an identity. 
You have a measure of success. You have a reputation. Sounds like the outside world thinks pretty highly of you. But you are on the brink of death. You're hanging on the precipice. You are hanging over the cliff. You're dangerously close to going over the cliff. And he gives them the exhortation to wake up. Literally means to keep watch. To be watchful. And that exhortation in verse 2 That exhortation to watchfulness, according to historians, would be extremely relevant for the believer in the city of Sardis. Listen to how historians describe the city of Sardis. The exhortation to watchfulness would have carried special weight with the believer in Sardis. Two times in its history, the city fell because of lack of vigilance. The city was built on a mountain. The Acropolis built on a spur of the mountain. It seemed invincible. The city was never taken by direct military assault, but twice it became too comfortable to at ease. In 549 BC, Cyrus captured the Acropolis by sending a climber up a crevice on one of the perpendicular walls of the fortress. And then in 218 BC, Antiochus the Great captured the city as a band of 15 men sneaked up to the wall and into the fortress, opening gates from within. The history of Sardis teaches us that we are never more in danger of falling than when we are comfortable and at ease. Do you hear that? You may think you have the blessing of God upon you. Things are going great. Everything looks perfect. To look at it from the outside, it might look healthy. The reputation of being alive. That's what others thought of you. Attendance is good. Finances are good. People seem happy. Everything's in good order. Many activities. Maybe VBS is even going on tomorrow. Who knows? Well organized. But the Lord of the church, the Lord of the harvest, says you're on the brink of death. You're on the precipice. Yes, he lays out hope. He says you still have a few names in Sardis, people who haven't soiled their garments. But he says, you're on the brink of death. Are you awake? Are you listening? See, what is the specific problem that Jesus is very pointedly challenging and confronting here? What does Jesus say to them? Greg Beal, teacher at Westminster Seminary, sums it up very well, the direness of the situation. He says, the so-called Christians of Sardis are living in such a way as to call into question whether or not they possess true living faith in Christ. See, you can't lose your salvation, but it's a question, do they have true living faith in Christ? Beale writes, does the name Christian genuinely apply to them? And so he says, what was the precise problem in Sardis? He says, the particular expression of their spiritual lethargy was in not witnessing to their faith before the unbelieving culture. In other words, they forgot their purpose. They forgot they're a lampstand that is called to burn brightly and bear witness. That means point away from themselves, face the outward world, and witness to the glory of Christ. In a nutshell, it's evangelism. It's making disciples. See, it's amazing. Probably due to pressures of living in a pagan, hostile world, they were captivated and captured by fear and some suspicion. Fear had grabbed hold of them. Kind of like if we move too boldly into the city. 
If we move too boldly out into the culture, we may face the same persecution, the same sort of trouble of those other churches. You can almost hear the chatter. If you're in their version of the fellowship hall, you can hear them talking. You can hear kind of, have you heard about what's going on in those other churches? (gasps) Have you gotten word about all the persecution going on in Smyrna and Thyatira and Pergamum? Wait a second, that's the danger of too much outreach. That's the danger, we better be careful. One commentator puts it, Jesus could be saying that for all the church's great programming, they were not doing the one great deed, the one great work that any church is supposed to be doing. And he writes, this is the meaning behind the end of verse 2. I know your works, but they're not complete. You're doing many good things, but they're not complete. He says that for all their beehive of spiritual activity, they were not doing evangelism. He writes, after all, lampstands exist for one reason. Not complete means not doing the one things I've called you to do in the city. Another writer put it, Sardis was the perfect model of inoffensive Christianity. The lesson of Jesus' message to Sardis can be summarized in the phrase, always on the brink, ever on the edge. Every congregation and every individual disciple is always on the brink of not expressing authentic spiritual life. Friends, are you willing to admit the problem? Are you willing to face the problem? Are you willing to admit there could possibly, potentially be a problem? The danger of losing our purpose, the danger of failing to be a lampstand. Now, we have to recognize there are many ways we can fulfill our purpose. We're called to witness, which obviously means proclaim Christ, gospel proclamation in the world. But it doesn't mean every single person is always having direct gospel proclamation. But we ought to have as a church that kind of outward face. So our prayers, our fellowship, our life together, our group life, is geared not to meet our needs and preferences, but to witness to and proclaim the gospel to the city and to the world. Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations. That's our calling. So that's the first point. Do we want our lampstand to burn brightly? And do we admit that there could be a problem? And if there's a problem, what's the solution? You have to look at the promise of God. Look at verse 1, and let's look at how Jesus introduces himself in this particular message. It's very interesting when he says, To the angel of the church in Sardis write the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I want you to notice particularly the reference to the seven spirits of God. This is a phrase not unknown in the book of Revelation. Several times, for example, back in chapter 1, verse 4, we read, Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Again, in chapter 4, we read from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And again, in chapter 5, between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Okay, so what is this? John have a very poor doctrine of the Trinity here somehow? 
Are we to believe there are seven spirits of God? Well, yeah, of course not. Let's remember that Revelation is written in symbolic language. And as one commentator put it, in Revelation, the number seven is the number of completeness. It's the number of fullness, the number of essence, the number of reality. The phrase seven spirits of God, in other words, is a way of saying the real spirit of God in all his fullness, in all his reality, in all the unity of his manifold energy and grace. Jesus has confronted the problem. You're on the verge of death. And he's giving a solution. And the solution is, first of all, wake up. He gives it in the form of five commands. Wake up. Strengthen what remains. Remember what you have received. Keep it and repent. Now, I want you to think about these commands. Let's think about it from a couple different perspectives. First of all, can we keep them? Is there any way that we can do these? You know, is there any amount of my telling you wake up and strengthen and keep? And Are you going to be able to kind of measure up and muster up the energy to do that? What if I say it harder? Say it loud. Come on. It's just not going to work, is it? We don't have the resources to be able to do it. We can't measure up. But look at what it's saying. See, what do we receive? What are we to keep? What are we to strengthen what remains? See, think about this. What are we to do? The answer is nothing. We receive. And what do we receive? We receive the promise of God. See, Jesus introduces the letter, the message, with a reference to the fullness, the completeness, the reality, the essence of the Spirit of God. And he tells us, I want you to hold on, to keep, to come awake, to strengthen what remains, to remember what you've received. What is it you've received and heard? The answer is Jesus. And what does the Spirit, that's how he's communicating, that's the language he's communicating, what does the Spirit exist to do? John recorded for us in his gospel exactly the main function, the main job description of the Spirit. Very simple job description. He said, he will glorify me by taking what is mine and declaring it to you. In other words, the Spirit's main job is to give you Jesus. To say, look at what Jesus has done for you. He lived for you. He died for you. He sacrificed for you. He performed for you. He's your identity. He is your life. He is your cleansing. He is your validation. He has proven himself for you. The Holy Spirit is shining the floodlight on Jesus. And, he, and here is Jesus in the message saying, for you to recover your purpose, the key is look at Jesus. And I've given you the Spirit as the resource, as the person to look at Jesus, you've received the Spirit. And how does this relate to evangelism? Well, think about what Jesus said in the Great Commission. Do you remember we said this is the one great purpose? What does Jesus say in the Great Commission? He says, all authority has been given to me. In other words, a legal enthronement of Jesus. He's been made king. All authority in heaven and on earth, everywhere, has been given to him. Then he defines the task. Go and make disciples of all nations initiating them by baptism into the faith and teaching them to obey everything that I have taught you. Not only does, do we have the legal enthronement and the task defined, but then we have the promise of power when he says, Behold, 
I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus says, I will be with you always. The promise of power. And that comes in the form of the Spirit. And what is being promised here in this letter to Sardis? These are the words of him who has the seven spirits of God. The fullness, the essence, the reality of the Holy Spirit. See, you do not witness, you do not evangelize, evangelize, you do not point and proclaim the glory of Christ. We're not a lampstand on our own. We're not a lampstand in our own power, in our own fuel, in our own strength. We're clothed from on high with divine power. Do we believe that? See, that's what we have to strengthen and what remains. What remains is the Spirit. Receive what you have heard. What have you heard? You've heard about the Spirit of Jesus. Jack Miller says this of the Spirit. He says, at Pentecost, Jesus imparted to all the church the witnessing power of his Spirit. The church is indwelt by a commissioning spirit, which means that the power for doing the missionary task is Christ dwelling within the people of God. Theirs are the feet that go, the minds that think, the hearers that pray, and the mouths that proclaim, but the sole power for accomplishing the task is not in anything human, institutional, or organizational. It is in Christ. He is saying that in all our work, he will be secretly working by his own inward presence in our lives, taking away our fears, giving us love for the lost, enabling us to forgive our enemies and friends, and giving us a fervent trust in the power of the gospel to bring men to faith and to eternal life. Friends, does our lampstand burn brightly? See, let's ask some searching questions. Do we attempt only what we can control or what we will know will succeed? Do we attempt only what we know that we can accomplish in our own resources, in our own power, in our own control, that there is no risk of failure, no risk of falling flat on our faces, that we know we will succeed? See, put it another way, if Jesus were to take away his spirit, would it make any difference? Would you even notice if he were gone. Jack Miller, again, used to call churches. He'd say, you only have two choices before you. He would say, you could risk or you could rust. And he said, here's the definition of the glory of God. He said, the glory of God is the difference between what you can do naturally, what you can guarantee success at, guarantee will go well, no risk of failure, The glory of God is the difference between what's easy to do, what you can do naturally, and what you can only do by his grace. That difference is the glory of God. See, let me ask you this question. What is it we're attempting? What is it you're attempting as an individual? Or what are we attempting as a church that only the glory of God could do? What is it that I could suggest that we do that your response to me would be, what are you smoking, Jeff? you got to be kidding. We don't have the resources for that. Have you looked at the budget lately? Have you seen how few people we are? We can't do that. Don't be ridiculous. Oh, my goodness, there goes that funny pastor again going off. What could we... 
What is it that I could say? Maybe it's like uh, planting a church. And you would kind of look at me and go, there's not enough people. There's not enough money. There's not... That only the glory of God... That yes, if we do it, naturally it looks like it's going to fail, doesn't it? But only the glory of God could do. What about bearing the fruit of the Spirit in our lives? You recognize that the Spirit is supernatural, right? See, it's, it's one thing to kind of go, well, I naturally have my temper and I'm more loving or I'm more disciplined and self-controlled or I'm more joyful, I'm a happy person. I have, I'm tranquil, I'm chill, I have peace. You recognize that could be natural or artificial fruit? Supernatural is supernatural. The glory of God, the difference between what you can do naturally and what you can only do by God's grace. Supernatural love, supernatural joy, supernatural peace, supernatural patience. How are you going for it? Would you even notice if the Spirit were gone in your life? That's the promise of God in your life. Is the Spirit of Jesus showcasing, displaying, Making Jesus huge in your life. Do we live in light of the promise of God? Repenting of every vestige of our own self-reliance, self-determination, and leaning and appropriating only the promise of the Spirit. Father, I pray that we would be a church and we would be a people that would admit we could be hanging dangerously over a cliff. That that is, none of us are immune to that. That could be true of any of us and all of us at every time. And that you are a rescuer. That what we're going to be going over in Vacation Bible School this week is that Jesus rescues people. And then you give us the Spirit who is the presence of Jesus in our lives. Lord, I do pray for us to live supernatural lives, that we would see the glory of God in our midst, that we would be aware if the Spirit is missing, that it would crush us, and that we would seek to be clothed from on high with the power of the Spirit and live in light of your promise. Oh, gracious God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.